Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee. I'm one of the editorial board members. Today, it is my honor to be joined by Dr. Samer Al-Hadidi, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arkansas Medical School. Dr. Al-Hadidi is both an exceptional clinician as well as a prolific researcher. And what I'll be speaking to him about today is some of his research regarding disparities, socioeconomic, racial, and otherwise, in the treatment of multiple myeloma. Dr. Al-Hadidi, Samir, if I may, it's a pleasure to have you today. Yes, thank you. A pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I think it conceptually might be nice for our audience to kind of go through this thematically, you know, throughout the, the journey of a patient with myeloma. And that often starts with these, you know, pre-myeloma lesions, MGUS, and I'd love to pick your brain on some of the disparities that you're aware of and are researching in the pre-myeloma space for MGUS or smoldering myeloma. Then we'll talk about the newly diagnosed setting and access to trials, access to transplant, disease biology, and so forth. Um, and then at the end, we'll talk about, you know, real refractory multiple myeloma. I know that you've done some work, for example, with, uh, with disp racial disparities with CAR T therapy, for example, in the real refractory setting. And so I'd love to talk about that. Sure. So maybe we can start with MGUS. Um, you know, I, most people learn in medical school that MGUS happen more, more commonly in patients of African-American descent. And that's kind of all that most clinicians, I feel, understand about MGUS. What should a clinician practicing cancer patients with myeloma know about MGUS and disparities, or MGUS in particular, in the, in the Black patient population? Hey, thank you. Now, I, the multiple myeloma is thought to be coming from MGUS. So I think, you know, this is very important to know that uh, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance or MGUS is something that comes before uh, a myeloma. So, you know, multiple studies looked into um, if the prevalence is different, uh, looking into MGUS between African-Americans and other uh, ethnic racial groups. Since myeloma is twice as common in, uh, in, in African-Americans compared to, uh, to non-Hispanic whites, uh, MGUS was looked at, and actually uh, this difference is also noted at in the MGUS level. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a study, for example, that looked into a younger age group, 10 to 49 years uh, from the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey, or ENHANCE, and that was reported back in 2017, where they included more than 12,000 individuals and screened them uh, for possible MGUS. And MGUS was uh, identified in 63 uh, of them uh, at a rate of like around 0.3%. Uh, so MGUS was higher um, in, in Blacks in this uh, study. It was uh, uh, almost 0.8 compared to 0.2. Uh, so specifically in this study, almost four times higher. Mm -hmm. um, they believe it's uh, anything two to three times more common um, across all studies. So if we look at prevalence of MGUS, which is the precursor disease for myeloma, it seems to be more common uh, in, in African-Americans and also happens at younger age compared to you know, the other racial or ethnic groups. And you bring up an excellent point that, you know, I also should add that we all know that, you know, the myeloma is often more common in the African-American community. Do you feel like based on this, do you think it's just that kind of a, a rising tide of MGUS means more cases of myeloma? Or do you think that something with the disease biology about MGUS means that it is not only more common in Black patients, but often more likely to progress to active myeloma? Or is it a little bit of both or unknown? 
Well, I think part of it is unknown. The belief is it's mostly related to the higher uh, incidence of MGUS. Mm -hmm. And there are some, you know, some studies that, you know, support each of each claim, let's say it this way. So for example, you know, we, we just said that MGUS is, is more common in, in, in blacks compared to whites in general. And also that is more pronounced on a specific age group. So if you look at the age group of 40 to around 50, there actually the, uh, there is higher amount uh, of uh, uh, MGUS compared to myeloma in this specific age uh, group between blacks and, and, and whites. So it seems that when you start um, um, MGUS in uh, uh, African-Americans, it seems to be progressing quicker to myeloma. The reason why, if you look at myeloma incidence, um, usually it happens around five years uh, younger uh, and, and blacks compared to whites. So why this five-year gap? Uh, you know, uh, it could be because MGUS is more common. It could be because MGUS is developing to myeloma more more uh, quicker. So that, that's that's possible. Now, if you look into other data that may not support this claim, is looking at, for example, the, the VA data, where they looked at, you know, more than 4 million patients, and they found that, the, uh, you know, likely the increment in myeloma is related to the higher incidence of MGUS. Mm -hmm. uh, just because there is more MGUS, then there is more myeloma uh, in the patients if you follow them up, um, uh, you know, in the future. And when they looked at 10 years, uh, they uh, follow up, they didn't find differences in the incidence of myeloma in their subset. So it seems MGUS was higher, but it, this higher incidence turned into higher myeloma, but without, you know, uh, let's say, um, a relationship to a biological factor, at least by suggestion. Um, so in the field, I think there is uh, very limited data, if any, uh, into the biological uh, component into MGUS to myeloma or myeloma in, in African-Americans, to be honest. Absolutely. This is interesting. And I, uh, I don't know if you know, I'd be curious to see whether the rate of MGUS in the VA population was higher than in that NIH study. I'm sure, you know, VA patients have their own unique exposures, you know, to whether it be the Asian Orange in Vietnam or other things going on that might explain or change how MGUS behaves in the VA population versus the general population. Is any any truth to that, you think? Or you think that it's kind of a pretty homogenous population between the VA and this NIH other uh, cohort that was done? No, I think the, the VA study is, is, is quite larger number. And they have, the good thing about it, they have, you know, they follow patients across all the US and it's more representative. Sure. Uh, so it could have, and they have relatively higher number of, you know, African-Americans and in, in, in their data set, which is, you know, more relevant. Uh, so I think they their numbers could have been of a better estimate. Um, but, you know, coming to the VA uh, data, actually, you know, at some point there was a report saying that if you provide, uh, you know, we can talk uh, about that now. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you provide African-American with equal access to care, they, they do better. And they also recent report in blood advances that say that deletion 17P, which is you know, an adverse feature, uh, is less common uh, in, in Black Americans. And I think this is very important to, to highlight since they have data, but there are lots of missing data. 
uh, and on that subset. So whatever they reported, they reported on the actual data they have out of a very big proportion of patients. And when I looked at it, I think up to 85% of their data was missing on the fish level, on the genetics level. And so whatever you have is 15% out of all the myeloma patients. And in this 15% you have, there is less deletion 17P compared, uh, comparing you know, uh, African-Americans with white. But you know, with the caveat of this big missing data, I think this is, this is important. The thing that I'm trying to work at, to be honest with you, is looking into our gene expression profiling here at the University of Arkansas. Long data on it from the beginning and you know, at the time of relapse and see if there is actually at any point there is differences in the biology uh, of you know, uh, um, uh, multiple myeloma across different um, uh, you know, ethnic and racial groups. This has not been reported before, at least on our data set, and we're working on it right now. Uh, but this is interestingly now being reported from the VA group. Uh, um, and previously also there was some talk about lower uh, incidence of translocation, no, actually higher incidence of translocation, 11-14 in African-Americans compared to whites, which is associated with uh, better prognosis in myeloma. Absolutely. This is all fascinating. And I think it's a good segue. We've kind of already moved from AMGUS into the newly diagnosed setting. Um, you know, certainly there are biologic differences, as you said, there are absolutely socioeconomic differences um, in just how myeloma presents and how patients are treated. Can you speak to some of those variations, what we know, what we don't know, and what we're working on to fix disparities? Yeah, and I think one thing is, you know, should we really screen for MGUS? Because we say that MGUS, you know, Valid. is more common, yeah. Go ahead, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Yes, an excellent point. So because you know, it's more common in the, in, in the Black Americans, should we just screen them for? And I think this is, there is some, some things to come into screening whenever we talk about any screening. First of all, like how much of a risk is there if you find somebody with MGUS, um, then how much of risk is there for them to turn into myeloma? That's important. And usually we define low risk MGUS as, you know, no risk factors out of three suggested risk factors, as, as you know, you know, the CRM protein yeah. above uh, uh, or equal to 1.5 gram per deciliter, the non-IgG subtype like IgA, IgM, IgD, or abnormal free light chain uh, ratio of either more than 1.65 or less than 0.26. And so low risk, uh, which is absence of any of those risk factors, mm -hmm. tell us that the patient is likely, uh, is like having 5% risk of progression over 20 years. So if you develop this, let's say develop MGUS at an age of 70 years old or 65 years old, the risk of 5% over 20 years, how much that's significant for the patient. And so I think that that is very important to know if you know, risk-wise, first of all. And the other thing is, you know, as we're getting better and better now, we're trying to identify protein level at way uh, lower threshold and better sensitivity. So now whatever we're saying before, now we're able to you know, catch proteins in, in, in a really better way. So how much of a significance is this is still in question. Uh, you, know, you know, Black Americans are more common to have MGUS. Should we screen them? I personally think no. I think we should be, um, you know, more, um, you know, uh, kind of self-educated that they, if they come to us with signs and symptoms of myeloma or something to suggest that they may have it to try to catch it early and start treatment early because they, it's more common in them. So I think it's just a, a piece of info that we need to know. Um, 
Now there is, as you know, and everybody know now that, you know, that big Iceland study. So, you know, this is a big study to look into the benefit of, of screening in general. And I think uh, the only downside, um, you know, relevant to our talk is that the number of, you know, black patients there will be minimal, if any, given, you know, the, the structure of, of the country that's been studied. So to be honest with you, I'm not sure how, um, you know, applicable is this to the U.S. or, you know, because we have around 22% of all our new patients of myeloma as, as black Americans. So this is not like a trivial amount by any means. Uh, so approximately one fourth, it's very common in there. Um, Absolutely. And it's an excellent point that you bring up because uh, it's uh, the proportion of you know, Americans or African-American differs from parts of the country to part of the country or between countries. So Iceland or Olmstead County Mayo Clinic data might not be as representative of Arkansas or Philadelphia where I trained before this or San Francisco now. And that makes it tough. But I think it's good to see that researchers like you are kind of leading the field to kind of get at some of this. Um, once myeloma is diagnosed, let's say, whether it be through augmented screening or through that first CKD workup or fracture or so forth, are there differences that you're aware of in terms of how the racial or, or socioeconomic disparities in terms of how myeloma is treated, in terms of access to treatment, time to treatment, availability of transplant, and so forth? Uh, that's an uh, excellent question. So I, I think, you know, this is it's extremely relevant. First of all, the testing for an established patient with myeloma is less done in African-Americans. So if you look, there is an, uh, this uh, ASH abstract uh, for last year that presented data from Sears data, actually. Even doing a complete blood count for patients with established myeloma is, is less common to be done from in Black Americans compared to whites. I mean, those differences should not exist. Agreed. You know? Uh, uh, staging information like beta-2 microglobulin, LDH, bone marrow biopsy, PET scan, uh, even skeletal survey, like what we used to do before. All of those diagnostic testing are done less frequently. So that's one problem. Then even when you diagnose patients, the median time to start the first treatment is significantly longer in Black Americans. They also less, uh, less likely to initiate any first line of treatment. So if you look at all newly diagnosed myeloma, um, they have lower uh, likelihood to initiate a first-line treatment. So some of them, you know, likely present very uh, advanced or will not get a, a first line of treatment before something bad happened like death or, you know, worsening of their clinical condition. Also, median time from diagnosis to novel therapy is significantly longer. I mean, novel therapy, what the studies at least reported as, is immunomodulatory drug plus proteasome inhibitors. There's also studies to suggest lower utilization of lenalidomide and uh, you know, African-Americans. Uh, there was a studies that say there's 20% less uh, Vulcate use in African-Americans, mm. for example, as initial therapy. We know all those drugs are very effective in myeloma and they're less frequently uh, uh, used. Now, looking at the symptoms, for example, there, uh, there's also longer time from the presence of symptoms to diagnosis uh, in Black Americans. So that's another problem. And that's where we, we just talk about, you know, Black Americans are usually younger at diagnosis, five years younger. Despite that fact, they still are diagnosed relatively uh, delayed for at the personal level. So this is all comes to, you know, to how they are diagnosed, how they are treated. And now if we come to more complex treatments, let's say transplant, for example, they're receiving less transplants. 
they receiving less triplets. So if you look at bortezomib, lenalidomide, Bex, they receive less of this uh, on multiple series analysis. Um, now, uh, some work I did uh, uh, last year looking into um, other factors onto um, the national um, uh, sample of inpatient hospitalization. Well, there are fewer inpatient transplants for non-Hispanic uh, uh, plaques in general, more blood products, more ICU care utilization, so you can tell the patients are sicker. Mm -hmm. And while they're sicker, they're receiving less palliative care consultations, less uh, inpatient in chemotherapy, um, and they're dying more. Uh, compared to all other uh, groups. And if you, even if you look at the rates uh, currently, it's 2022, still Black Americans are the high, uh, they die more frequently than other race or ethnic groups. Now, I need to draw attention to one thing. You know, we believe that there is also lots of disparities affecting Hispanics, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, the, you know, um, but they do better compared to whites. So their outcomes are better despite the, you know, they have also less access to clinical trials, for example, they receive less transplants, uh, but they still do better. But, you know, the other piece of info that Black Americans in general do worse, um, despite all those disparities is, is you know, heartbreaking. Okay. Um, now, you know, as we, we just also talked about the differences in genetics, which is important, and, you know, the higher amount of translocation 1114 in, in, in African Americans, there was a, some thought about less high-risk cybergenetics, less deletion 17P, but there are actually some, I would say, you know, there was really an excellent study looking at RNA sequencing of uh, more than 700 patients, looking at differences on those between European uh, origin patients and black origin, origin patients, and they actually found there are some differences in some mutations. They're not very significant, at least, but there is nothing like um, a major difference to, to, to report. And what I'm trying to work at now is with the long, uh, longer data that we have, and uh, specifically the gene expression profiling data, is to look into those differences and their significance on you know, very long follow-up. So I think that is what the interest common, and I'm working on that as, as we speak. Agreed. And UAMS is a leader in this field, as are you, so I'm excited to see where that goes. And I think it's a good segue to gene expression profiling and uh, not just at diagnosis, but, you know, for now, real refractory disease. So moving into the final part of our discussion, you know, does clonal evolution happen differently? Do the dynamics of, of the myelobiology behave differently? And then uh, that's one question I'll ask you about. And the other question, obviously, the same socioeconomic disparities that apply to a diagnosed setting, how do they apply into the reoc refractory setting? I know that you published about disparities with regards to access to CAR-T therapy, for example. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. You know, I, and you, we could have even like think about relapse refractory setting to be more of a need for us because most patients usually do worse than newly diagnosed. Absolutely. They live shorter, their disease, you know, we could have considered their disease biology to be aggressive just by definition because they relapsed already. Uh, so I think it's it's a very important, uh, you know, a disease population to look at. So I think it's more troublesome for relapsed refractory in general, given the disease. You know, patients are usually older, as you know, they, you know, they may have more uh, uh, other comorbidities, heart disease is common, diabetes, you name all of those. And we know that uh, clinical trials for relapsed refractory and even newly diagnosed enroll very low number of, of African Americans. And, you know, and at some point when I initially studied this, looking at all cancer um, and specifically myeloma, and um, 
many, you know, as you know, many myeloma uh, clinical trials are run worldwide, globally. Mm-hmm. So you may not have enough black and you know black patients to enroll worldwide. But looking into CAR-CHI, for example, first of all, CAR-CHI is a very recent uh, development. It's not long. Uh, we know about disparities before we established CAR-CHI studies, and we have approved products now and for patients with very minimal uh, effective treatments. And you know, if they don't get CAR-CHI and are eating less, then many of them die, unfortunately. So this is very relevant. And when I looked at uh, the FDA approvals for, you know, CAR-Ts for lymphomas and myeloma, now we have two approvals for myeloma, the number of patients enrolled in those clinical trials are extremely limited. You know, they're less than uh, two digits. Uh, And if you adjust it to how common is multiple myeloma, for example, in Black Americans, this uh, adjustment, what we call uh, participation to prevalence ratio, is extremely low telling that it's not even low, it's very low, because if you look how much patients are there, you're not, you're kind of selecting some of them, not all of them. Yeah. And, and this is a problem because, you know, first of all, patients miss opportunities. Those are effective drugs. Uh, second of all, uh, our results may be not accurate mm-hmm. because you're, you're doing some sampling error there. You know, you're, you're studying a subset of patients. So there is some sampling error for how you're selectively choosing some of the patients. And then it's, that's why we don't know much about biology, to be honest, you know, because we, we, did, we never have this robust data to really look into differences uh, because we don't enroll many of those patients there. Um, the sad part is that most of those CAR-T uh, pivotal trials were done in the U.S. using U.S. patients, you know, the vast majority of those patients. So Agreed. it's not a global trial, it's here but we're not enrolling patients enough. Um, and I, I think this is, you know, this is a very complex, probably a, a speak by itself, but it, it has to do with many things. You know, it has to do also with us as, you know, physicians, maybe not uh, telling patients about those opportunities as 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 we're supposed to. It, it has to do with socioeconomic problems, financial constraints, availabilities, access to, them, to those trials is, is a very big problem. I know you cannot open those trials in almost that county, Minnesota, and hope for the best, for example. You know, you need to help in them where African-Americans are available. Uh, where are they? And, you know, in different states, you know, uh, that they're more commonly there. They're counties where they live. So they have access to this. Uh, so I think that's very important. So maybe that's actually an excellent uh, segue to maybe my final question. I think, uh, you know, step one in this process is calling these problems by their name, you know, identifying the disparities that exist, trying to figure out why they're happening, how pronounced they are. And the next step is trying to mitigate them, trying to erase them, or trying to uh, you know, give everyone equal access to the care opportunities that they need. Are there any strategies or, or, or tools on the horizon that you think people are using or could be using, meaning people meaning us as myeloma physicians, to help uh, to address and mitigate these disparities, both in standard of care and in clinical trials? Yeah, thank you. I think that's that's the core. And that's what we really care about, like getting better. And I think there are some improvement and I need to call good things when you see it. You know, there are some pharmaceutical companies that keep uh, trials open for longer to recruit more uh, black patients. And that's a positive thing. I think that's good because you want to try to fix the problem by allowing more time for those patients to get enrolled and search for them and give them. I think we need to be uh, like um, put more efforts into including more centers where they serve those patients, give them access to those clinical trials so we could enroll those patients. 
also, I think personalized medicine, you know, you need to look at what prevent patients from enrolling. If a patient has a work and if they lose their job, they will not be able to support their family. We need to financially support those patients, maybe give them the transportation cost that they may end up paying out of their pocket. We need to educate them about, uh, uh, you know, clinical trials better because, you know, there's lots of uh, issues into the clinical trial ethics that we that was in, in the past that we need to overcome by explaining and teaching and re-explaining and reteaching. I think this is very important. And I'm a big believer of regulations. I think we should have, have a regulation to uh, ensure a certain amount of patients enrolled in registration of trials. Because if you wanna really use a drug for the population, you wanna make sure it works for the population you uh, wanna use it. Uh -huh. uh, so the FDH, I believe, should have those hard stops onto clinical trials to make sure that a certain amount of patients should be enrolled. And this can be a gradual process, you know, um, something that will come get better over a few years, but at least we can show this improvement and you know, make, make sure that pharma work with us to improve this. Because uh, believe it or not, I'm looking into this, hopefully we'll get it out soon. Most of the clinical trials for bispecifics and CAR-T are sponsored by pharma, you know, that 98%. So even if you have uh, regulations by the government to say that you need to enroll minority patients, you know, those, those studies are not, in, uh, you know, they cannot follow up those regulations. Those regulations are for NCI, for example, supported research. So I think pharma, pharma wants to, to help and they want to enroll more patients, but it's, it's and it's, we need to work with them with that and on put regulations to enforce this and make sure that we do it the right way. Agreed. And you brought up some elegant solutions. As you said, it'll be a gradual process. Allowing more time for clinical uh, trial enrollment is an excellent uh, point because you're right that I think patients, even anecdotally for us, you know, Black patients take longer to present for us because they don't know about CAR-T therapy, aren't referred to the academic center earlier. And I think that's important. And I know that there are definitely some trials out there, both in the newly diagnosed setting and real refractory setting that are having, you know, a Black cohort or something along those lines, but specifically trying to enrich for this patient population, and that's very commendable. Um, Dr. Al-Hadidi, this has been very, very, very illuminating. Thank you again for your time. Any parting words or anything else you want to say as we wrap up? Oh, thank you so much. I think this is great. And I think uh, uh, pointing uh, those things, as you just said, is, is great. And then as a, you know, you're, you know, an excellent researcher and clinician to be, and you're starting your new job as, you know, I'm just starting it. And I think all of us, if we're all hand to hand, uh, hoping to hopefully helping to, to solve this, ultimately it will get solved. You know, patients, patients listen, patients just have concerns if you talk to them and you explain it and you, and I mean, they'll listen. I have no patients saying no for a research if they understand it and they have you know, the time to do it, they, they'll do it. So I think we, we all should work together to get this better. And, and, and thank you for you know, highlighting this. I think that's important. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.